Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, my partner in crime in this particular escapade, the great Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. How are you doing today, Grant? I'm doing just fine, my friend, just fine. I'm very, very excited about this conversation. You know, you and I have been musing about all the different pieces of this Endgame puzzle for quite some time now, and there's been a glaring hole in the middle of it, and that's to speak to anybody with real genuine insight into how central banking works, how the thought process works, how the decisions are made, and we are going to put that right today when we speak to Judy Shelton. Yes, this this should be very interesting given her knowledge of how things have worked in the past and her sound grounding and uh, having gone through the process, her viewpoint will be most interesting to hear. Yeah, I, I think I think you know, the, the less you and I talk beforehand, the better. So why don't we just bring Judy on now and then we can talk about it afterwards. So uh, here's Judy. Judy, welcome. We're so pleased that you found the time to chat with us on The Endgame. Thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. I really appreciate your being interested in my views. Well, Bill and I have gone backwards and forwards trying to figure out the end game. And by that, what we're really trying to get at, I guess, is how the evolution from this monetary regime to whatever comes next occurs. And we have no idea what it is, but it just feels as though we're reaching the end of a cycle. And with all the views we've had, the one thing that's been missing has been someone who really understands from the inside the central banking community in which you've lived and breathed. So we're both delighted to have the chance to talk to you about that and get this perspective from the other side of the fence. Well, it will be enjoyable for me to think in that context of being part of that world in one sense, but also very interested in in the end game, Uh, not so much as a cyclical thing, but maybe we're reaching the end of an epic in terms of central banking being seen as the the right way to provide a monetary foundation for market-based economies. Judy, I'd like to maybe just jump into the deep end of the pool. You've seen a lot of evolution in the thought process and the practicing of central banking from gold standard to almost MMT, which is, I don't think the pendulum can swing a whole lot wider than those two outcomes. And I guess one of the really uh, pressing questions is, is there a way for the central banks to try to get back to some sort of sanity, even if it's not a, you know, a gold standard, but get away from the sort of the, the seat of the pants process that seems to be at work where we've had two, maybe three bubbles and QE and all of that. Is it possible to get from here back to some semblance of sanity? without having a train wreck in between, if that's not too loaded of a question? Uh, I think that's that's the big question. And uh, you really framed it well to talk about um, a gold standard as a form of an international monetary system versus um, near (laughs) MMT, as you say, where government debt doesn't seem to matter, balanced budgets don't seem to matter, uh, central bank printing of money 
doesn't seem to matter, or at least there was a sense that maybe we can get away with all that without having any kind of fiscal or monetary discipline. I have long focused, I would say, on both theory and reality. Theory is more fun <laughs> because you don't have the constraints of dealing with what you just asked. If, if you look at the status quo approach that, that we all have now, it's ludicrous. I mean, look at, look at the um, press conference last week. The head of the most important central bank in, in the world, Jay Powell sort of accidentally responds to the question from Steve Leisman of CNBC about whether he was considering 75 basis point increase, which had been floated by other members of the Monetary Policy Committee, the FOMC. And he said, oh, well, that's not being actively considered. Oh, man, that blew up everything. Now suddenly um, the Fed is dovish instead of hawkish. And I think if, if the whole global economy, which is so linked to US monetary policy, let alone our own domestic economy, depends on whether they are considering 75 actively, whatever time period that means, versus 50 basis points, this is, this is impossible. And yet that was discussed in the most serious way in all the following days and continues to be. We have um, a crazy relationship between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, where the Fed buys basically the, the debt that reflects congressional overspending, puts it in its portfolio, takes the returns off that portfolio and gives them back to Treasury. What people now say is, oh, they're raising rates. What they're doing is lifting two specific rates. And one is the rate that the Fed pays to commercial banks, to depository institutions, to keep their reserves sitting there doing nothing. It's almost extortion. Here's what we will pay you, and now we're going to increase it, to keep that money sitting in your reserve account, not buying anything, not investing in anything, completely sterile. And that is about 3.9 trillion. The other rate, when they raise the rate, is 10 basis points less than that. And that's the rate they pay on overnight reverse repurchase agreements. That's another 1.8 trillion. So the Fed is paying hedge fund managers and banks interest to keep that money out of the real economy. And we're talking 5.7 trillion. That money that the Fed has been able to pay, that has to come out of their portfolio earnings, but now it's going to start to eat them all up. If they even get up to, to 3% on reserves, if reserves hadn't gone down very much, um, that's gonna eat up the 120 billion that last year they gave to Treasury. So at some point, probably in the next year, the Fed would have to go to Treasury and say, you have to give us approval to pay banks, about a third of them are foreign-owned banks, not to make loans. And all of this is supposed to help us be dealing with a supply problem, which is really what's causing the inflation right now. I guess I'll just sum up by saying the Fed's only policy option, its only real tool, is to kill demand, 
by raising interest rates, but it's also killing supply because now people who maybe would have been willing to start companies to increase production, to expand output, to meet that increased demand for more supply are unable to. And meanwhile, people who are still in business producing something, goods or services, they're gonna have higher borrowing costs. That is an additional cost of doing business that has to end up in the retail price of whatever they sell to the public. That is not a way to defeat inflation. So I'm just sad that this is what it has come to, that central banking, to me, is not solving our problems, but now they're locked into proving that they're going to channel Paul Volcker. But at the, I know, well, Paul Volcker was a very good friend, and um, he would be the first to say that this sort of inflation is nothing like what he was contending with. And the Fed's tools are nothing like he was using at the time that he addressed inflation early in the Reagan years. Judy, that's beautifully put. I'd love to use that uh, actually as a framework to ask a question that's kind of foundational to me in trying to understand this whole thing. And that is, you've just laid out, as I say, beautifully, the exact problems that we're facing. And for us, on the market-facing side of the fence, you know, we look at the world and we look at central bank reaction functions, we look at central bank policy, and we see exactly the world you've just described. And so the difficult thing, I think, for anybody who's a practitioner in markets is to just sit back and say, what don't they get? Because the solutions to what you've just laid out are fairly clear. Now, they're, they're painful in the extreme, particularly in the short term, but they clear a path to real fundamental growth and prosperity once again. So, so what is it that stops the central banks making these difficult decisions? Is it, is it fear? Is it politics? What is it that keeps them from implementing the rather obvious solutions to the problem you just laid out so eloquently? Well, speaking of Paul Volcker, I remember quite a long time ago, it must have been in the mid-90s, I think it was a, the 50-year anniversary of, of Bretton Woods. And we did a two-hour interview um, for a publication. And afterward, we were just talking. He said what he had come to believe is that people accept the mystique of central banking. And therefore, central bankers are required to maintain the illusion that they know better than market participants, than, than even political leaders, what can be done to save the economy. So when there's a, a, a moment of crisis, he said, it's, it's wrongheaded, but people think we have a plan. They think we know what needs to be done. And he said, and, and it's a falsehood, but the fact that they believe in this falsehood is the only thing that actually saves the situation. If they knew that the people making decisions at the Federal Reserve really didn't know anything more about what could happen than, than any other market observer, there would be true panic. But so long as the head of the Fed can be reassuring and say, we have the tools and we're going to move expeditiously and we acknowledge our, our mandate 
I mean, let's face it. The mandate is not a mandate of doable things so much as a mantra where it's like an intonation. And if Federal Reserve officials keep chanting that we are going to deliver stable prices and maximum employment, then that has a soothing effect. But you could say right now, the Fed could could show that it's serious about fighting inflation and, and run up the interest rate to 10%. But if next week, uh, Congress approves spending programs that put money in people's pockets, or let's say the White House decrees that all student loan is forgiven, again, freeing up funds that normally would have gone into making those payments or lowering costs in one area that now, again, gives more purchasing power to to people for consumer goods or services, that increased demand, if you don't have the concomitant increase in supply, is going to be inflationary. So the, the thing that's this virtuous pretext for Congress not to criticize the Fed is to say, well, they're politically independent. But that's really mutually convenient because the Fed likewise refrains from criticizing overspending by Congress or the White House. And um, meanwhile, if you talk about who is responsible for stable currency, um, it's, it's an old rule in Washington that Treasury never talks about monetary policy and people at the Federal Reserve never talk about exchange rate policy. But here we have a situation where as a domestic currency, the dollar is failing Americans. If you're looking at 8% inflation, melting retirements, at the same time, um, the dollar is at two decade highs relative to other major currencies we were going to have, we were expected to have 1% growth last quarter. We came out at 1.4% negative, a contraction almost entirely due to the plunge in exports. So who do you go to? Who really is to be called on the carpet for not delivering stable money? And I think that's the dilemma that, that now maybe opens the possibility of more fundamental monetary reform, but then we get to the issue you brought up, um, or, or no, was it Bill, you brought it up. What is the transition mechanism? How do we go from this entrenched system where everyone sits around and asks questions of, of Jerome Powell for an hour after a, a monetary policy committee meeting to something approaching a more rules-based, predictable, policy tool that the public and Federal Reserve officials could could observe, and that would give a better indication of the future path of the value of the dollar or of interest rates. Judy, uh, when you mentioned the chanting, <laughs> uh, that, that sort of resonated you know, with the fact that the, the Fed maintains all this credibility. And it reminded me of I've been paying attention to what the Fed's been up to my whole career. And this idea that 2% inflation is part of their mandate, that never was the case. And But everybody said it often enough that somehow people have come to believe that 
Do you have any insight in how that evolved and just saying something over and over can make it seem to be true? Uh, I do, because I've had the exact same reaction as you. Um, how can you have built-in obsolescence of the currency that is meant to be a store of value? The, the 2% idea to me is um, expropriation by government without due process. I mean, let's say you just earn your money and, and you, you put it under your mattress. You should have a right. How is it that if you kept it under that mattress as savings for 10 years, that when you were ready to use it, 20% of its value had been expropriated? I, I think it's a, a private property issue and should be a matter of a rule of law. Uh, I think it's a moral failing of government not to provide a reliable currency that does not lose value given that we have legal tender laws. And if you have to use the dollar, then the dollar has to perform. The reason this happened, and, and it's fantastic read, to go back and, and look at the transcript for the FOMC meeting in July 1996. And Alan Greenspan was the um, head of the Fed. Janet Yellen was on the um, Board of Governors. And um, Janet Yellen is married to a very smart economist, George Akerlof. Uh, I used his work when I wrote my own dissertation. But he specializes in looking at labor effects and, and how they relate to monetary policy. And in a very Keynesian way, he had been working on a paper that was saying, if, if you have 0% inflation, and then there's an economic downturn, and you have to um, cut people's wages, say, say 1%, that's very uh, damaging to the human spirit. Uh, companies don't like to do that. And, um, and that you would actually get better performance, again, using this money illusion, very Keynesian approach, if, for example, you always had 2% inflation, then if you have to experience a 1% downturn, you can make sure that you give them a raise, but it's 1%, say. So now you've effectively implemented a 1% cut in the real wage that you're paying someone, but from their point of view, they just got a raise. And Greenspan had actually been saying during that meeting, we have to come up with a definition of inflation. And after Janet Yellen kind of convinced him that overall you might end up having better employment behavior because you don't put companies in the awkward position of having to cut wages because there's this illusion that people are making more even though their real wage has gone down. If you have more inflation, people somehow look at the, the nominal value of the money they're getting without always realizing they're now making less in terms of purchasing power. She somehow convinced him, but the next day, and it's also in the record, he was concerned that if the Fed minutes came out, it took a, took a while in those days before they would come out, that many in Congress would consider that a violation of the Fed's mandate to facilitate stable prices. That is, if stable prices 
means stable inflation, which is the truth that that's how the Fed looks at it, really violates Humphrey Hawkins. The Humphrey Hawkins legislation from 1977 that gave us that mandate actually was seeking zero inflation three years on, zero. So I think the Fed has a problem with the 2% target. I think it, it violates, again, the importance of stable price signals and having a store of value that means something and gives meaningful price signals to people, whether it's for production or for investment. And um, I think that the public should really question that approach. Stable inflation is an oxymoron in my book. Judy, it's so interesting you say that because if you just sat back and thought about this in really simplistic terms, then of, of course, a 0% inflation should be the target. And there'll be periods where you have higher inflation and there may be periods of deflation. But if you can target and maintain that real stability at zero, and as you say, the oxymoron is fascinating when you think of it in those terms, but central bank policy really for decades now has been in some ways designed to inflate away this, this ever-increasing amount of debt that governments are layering on top of the situation in the name of fixing the last crisis. But has that need to to manage inflation because of the debt burden been passed down to the Federal Reserve as something they're required to help facilitate? Because, you know, without that, obviously this debt burden becomes a problem as we, and they, I suspect, are now beginning to find out. But what a conflict of interest. I mean, I've already said that this um, these conflated uh, financial statements between the Fed and, and, and Treasury uh, on a consolidated basis uh, would be ruled completely ridiculous that the Fed buys up government debt and then remits the the interest return back to Treasury. I mean, if that's allowable and that's accepted, there's no question the Fed should buy all of the government debt. Right now, it holds about 25% of the publicly held Treasury debt. Why not buy it all, take all of the interest returns, and give all of that back to Treasury, if that's allowed, because it's such a conflict. And I don't know why it isn't questioned. I've actually heard a few congressmen saying thank you to the Fed, because that's been a significant input. That's been in the top three or four sources of revenue to the government. When, uh, when that got up to $120 billion last year, uh, that was significant. And uh, that's why I say what people aren't really looking at is once the Fed starts paying real interest on the trillions in reserves and in reverse repurchase money, which is just companies parking cash overnight at the Fed, and then the Fed pays them interest. So that keeps it out of the real economy again. That just you we, we have real money and play money. So the play money is what the Fed is going to pay interest on to keep it from going into the real economy, that's going to reverse. And that's going to wipe out those very same portfolio revenues and cause the Fed to violate something it has long held up as a reason it's independent. The Fed has always bragged that we don't rely on Congress for funding. And that's why we're independent. We handle our own budget. We take out our minuscule administrative costs. And we give back 95% of our revenues, that is the interest returns from our $9 trillion portfolio, back to the government. 
well, that's going to change. And if, if people then start asking, now, why are we paying our central bank to pay banks and money market funds not to let the money leave their deposit accounts at the Fed when there are no reserve requirements? There are none right now. There haven't been since uh, late in the pandemic. So no reserve requirements. So why are they leaving it there? And why is the Fed going to pay them more to keep it there? I, I think it's perverse. I believe in the nobility of financial intermediation and banking and the old school approach that would-be borrowers came in to banks and they were judged on their character, their competence, their credit record. Did they have a good plan? Did they seem disciplined? And, and the, the talent of banking, the art of banking was to decide, were they a worthy borrower? Would they be able to not only pay back their loan, but go on to be successful, sufficiently successful to generate profits that would cover their borrowing costs, but at the same time, employ people, provide something to uh, other finance, financial partners. All of that was is just a blessed thing. That's how we get productive output. That's how you improve for society, the standard of living. That's how you, you bring real prosperity to people. And, and I think that that all depends on, on the money being real. So now where we have this approach where so, so much of the money is what I call play money. It's just, it's just trying to outmaneuver and take advantage, whether it's through very sophisticated derivatives or through uh, these uh, repurchase, uh, reverse repurchase agreements with the Fed, or, or they do it the easy way and just keep unrequired reserves sitting at the Fed. But again, I'm saying these are huge numbers, almost $6 trillion. And, and so people say, oh, well, the whole problem is the money supply has gone up. Well, a big part of the definition of that base money are those reserves, and they're not going anywhere. They're staying at the Fed. That's the difference in banking today and the relationship between banks and the Federal Reserve that didn't exist at the time of Paul Volcker. That sort of brings up a question. I mean, you sort of raised a question that seems to me we would need a level of sophistication in Congress, in the media, somewhere to ask the question that you essentially pose is the rhetorical question, what are we really doing here as central bankers? And I don't see where the intellectual firepower is in Congress to try to even bother to understand this. It seems to me this is just, there doesn't seem to be very many people who understand what I want to say sound money. I don't I don't mean to sound like a, you know, a, a, a crazy person. But what you're basically advocating is having a currency that's that's sound and, and pursuing sort of what we might think of as conventional policies. And I don't see how we can get there without a train wreck, because it seems to me that given what I just stated about the lack of understanding or, or even caring, it seems to me absent a massive crisis, I, I don't see who would do the questioning to say, hey, should we be doing this differently? Am I wrong to think of it that way? Um, no, and I kind of found out the hard way <laughs> because <laughs> I, I have considered myself more of a scholar looking at potential approaches in the highly theoretical realm. 
I mean, I wrote Money Meltdown when I was uh, in 94. I was still back at the Hoover Institution, a senior fellow. Uh, Milton Friedman was just uh, two minutes down the hall, and he was also a senior fellow. I always liked that we had the same title. But um, there was the time when Milton Friedman could debate what was the best way to provide a unified monetary system. And um, generally, that meant uh, a global system. Global wasn't such a bad word. Uh, certainly, you could talk about international monetary systems. And he debated people like Robert Mundell, who also was a Nobel Prize winner. And you could have a, a gold standard. I mean, that was certainly a very viable and, and many people, including <laughs> this is what's funny for me is like you say, you don't want to sound like a crazy person to say sound money. Um, I don't understand the ignorance of people who think that Alan Greenspan or Paul Volcker or Milton Friedman or Robert Mundell didn't talk extremely in extremely normal terms about the gold standard relative to other monetary approaches. Milton Friedman says that a the only monetary system that truly supports free trade is a gold standard, a unified monetary system. What Milton hated was a pegged exchange rate system. So he didn't like Bretton Woods. He didn't like that Bretton Woods relied on governments to honor their promise because under the Bretton Woods system, um, other countries who were our trade partners in the interest of having a, a level monetary playing field agreed to keep their currencies fixed to the dollar at, at a stable rate. And the dollar was convertible into gold, but only if you were a foreign central bank. You could take residual dollars that piled up and you could take them back to the Fed and they would have to remit $35 or 30, yeah, $35 per ounce of gold. That is, you could trade in your $35 and get an ounce of gold. It had to be convertible both ways if you were a foreign central bank. Under the international gold standard, every individual had that right. They could go to their bank and say, um, here's the cash, I want the gold. It's interesting that when the country first went on uh, gold standard, actually it was gold and silver, and it was Thomas Jefferson who wrote the notes on the establishment of a money unit for the United States, he went with that approach because it would be the most international way for the United States to, to become part of the, the global trading community. It was very straightforward. People were comfortable with it. But what I think is, is, is interesting, and, and this is why people sometimes get mixed up, they say, well, we don't have enough gold. All the gold standard did in those days was defined, a country would define its currency in terms of a, a, a universally recognized form of value. The government of the United States, a very young government trying to knit together 13 colonies that were now newly independent states after the revolution, certainly didn't have gold to back everybody's um, economic activity. All they agreed to do was mint it. You brought in your own gold and they would certify it, assay it, melt it down, stamp it and say, this is $10 because we've just defined what our currency is. The, the constitutional power granted to Congress says that they have the right to regulate the money 
And that is in the same sentence as the line in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, that gives Congress the right to define weights and measures. It was simply meant to be a standard. So, so that's kind of the very liberal notion behind um, a goal standard is individuals provided their own wealth, but it was in conjunction with a recognized unit of account as defined by nation states for their own nation state. But together, if they maintained convertibility at the stipulated rate, you had automatically a universal system based on the same reference point. I think when, when I talk about the role of gold, either in that system or in the Bretton Woods system, I'm, I'm saying it doesn't have to be gold. That is, you don't have to have a new monetary system based on gold, but I think it's a worthy goal to try to have something as good as gold in terms of helping to set up a foundation for productive economic activity uh, during the roughly 20, 30 years when the United States was on the Bretton Woods system, the increase in, in productivity, the decline in wage inequality, the decline in income inequality, the participation across the population in uh, increasing prosperity, uh, all of those numbers, the financial stability, were so much better than what we have now. The Bank of England did a study a few years ago, and it's just startling. In fact, under the Obama administration, in one of their annual budget documents, they included a special section describing changes in, in net income for individuals. And they called the years that coincided with the Bretton Woods era, say 1944 to to 71, ultimately 73 is when it officially ended. They called that the era of shared prosperity because the increase in income, wages, and decrease in inequality were so pronounced. So I don't know why people can't intelligently discuss how economic performance has been affected by different monetary approaches and, and to rationally discuss whether we could do something better than what we have now. I think what we have now, and people will increasingly ask is, why are you killing my, my pension funds, my 401k? I mean, over 40% of Americans have, have money invested in the market. They're, they're being destroyed. <laughs> and why raising interest rates is where the Fed takes its stand. Even some of my the people I, I agree with are saying, oh, why don't you they raise it 100 basis points for the next three meetings? And I'm thinking, are you really, are you really contemplating what the impact of that is? And, and isn't it killing supply as much as demand? And why would you want to starve entrepreneurs from the ability to produce more output? Isn't that the, the best solution to a problem of inadequate supply rather than killing demand? Judy, it's interesting. And just following up on Bill's, there's so many things about what you just said that I, I'm dying to get into. But I just want to go back to Bill's question. Um, you, you mentioned earlier on a couple of congressmen actually thanking the Fed for returning that money to, to Treasury. And it just makes me wonder about the 
Bill mentioned used the word sophistication, which I think is the right question here. Um, monetary theory, economics are just confusing and opaque enough to make most people not want to question how they work because as soon as you get the, the first sentence of an answer, you, a lot of people's eyes tend to glaze over. So what what is the general level of understanding about this in Congress? Because what we've seen certainly over the last 20 odd years is for politicians, perfection. We've seen you know interest rates low, the ability to print money without any consequences, no inflation. It's been a perfect time to not ask questions about how all this works because it has worked. Now we're at the point where questions need to be asked. And I just wonder, do they have the sophistication required to ask the right questions of the right people or not? Um, that's really interesting that you would you would ask that. I do think what we're seeing is uh, in Congress, people recognizing that they say, oh, the money supply is, some of them like to say, it's always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Again, going back to a very different time, Milton Friedman would be the first to say, but that doesn't apply in days where we've magnified the impact of central bank influence over the real economy. He would hate the way our system is operating today. I think some members of Congress are starting to ask themselves, why is it that the Fed was trying so hard to get up to 2% inflation for so many years? And even as the public at some of the forums the Fed held around the country to ask what people's concerns were about central banking, people never could understand why the Fed was so fixated on wanting higher inflation. And the Fed attributed that to a communication problem, a failure to communicate on their part. But I think what it was is the money supply was increasing technically again, but the reserves were piling up and not getting into the real economy. So members of Congress said, we don't have inflation. So you're right, it's, it's not an issue. It really didn't suddenly turn into inflation and people start getting worried about these enormous increases in the money supply until right about last March, that last 1.9 trillion, I think, was distributed in such a form of pure liquid cash. Some of it went into savings and then that was spent down. But I think that put so much pressure on demand in conjunction with supply issues that the inflation came almost from out of nowhere. At least a few people were seeing it. Larry Summers certainly did. I think I was writing about it for the journal the summer before, but I think it took the Fed another six months to acknowledge it, let alone start talking about when they would quit buying mortgage-backed securities and quit buying treasuries. So the Fed was, was late on that. Now, that means to me that members of Congress understand that the Fed could go to extremely high interest rates but if you still have the spending, you see a lot of blaming of Biden because Biden wasn't, this is President Biden yesterday, wasn't accepting blame for inflation. And so the Republican answer now is, we'll just quit spending. But that's almost the first acknowledgement in a way that's getting a little bit more specific to say you can't have sound money without sound finances at the level of government. So Congress, which has never been good about imposing fiscal discipline on itself, is now saying stop the spending. But maybe more positive for me, and I'm going back a few years, 
But in the 2012 and the 2016 Republican platforms, and for 2020, Republicans, I think, just um, re-accepted the one from 2016 because they, they thought because of COVID they shouldn't meet to, to rehash a new platform. So you could say for the last three uh, four-year instances of having a Republican platform, the part of that statement that dealt with the Federal Reserve has called for a monetary commission to evaluate the impact of the Federal Reserve on economic performance to explore possible alternatives and to set a path for the future of how money would be regulated in the United States. This is meant to be a bipartisan, a scholarly exercise. I think they allocate about uh, two years and then that commission would report its findings. It actually passed, that was passed, it was sponsored by Kevin Brady in the House of Representatives in 2015. So the plank in 2016 said, we recommend the enactment of this legislation by the full Congress, and we welcome suggestions from the commission about how to secure the integrity of our currency. And to me, that's also a way to bring together a stable money, both in the sense that the Fed tries to deliver it in stable prices, but also internationally, as the Treasury is supposed to be responsible for stable exchange rates. So it actually was picked up in the Senate and introduced under uh, Senator John Cornyn of Texas. And the co-sponsors were Ted Cruz and Rand Paul. But it was introduced and it went to the Senate Banking Committee and then it was not taken up further. So it died in committee. I think to myself, in 2015, inflation was not such a compelling issue. As we've said, money supply was being increased inordinately, but it was locked up. So it didn't get into the real economy where you have um, uh, excessive demand um, coming up against inadequate supply. But inflation is an issue now. I think it's time to revisit the legislation and to begin to question if it's possible, whether this entrenched approach to having, I mean, it was just four governors. Now we're getting up to five or six, but a total maximum of 12 people meeting every few weeks to decide what should be the cost of capital. To me, in a, in a market-based capitalist system, there can't be any more important price than the cost of capital. And since my, the early part of my career looked at the internal financial and monetary um, developments in the Soviet Union, it would seem to me that it should be settled that fixed prices don't work as well as market-determined prices. So why would you fix the most important price in a, in a capitalist economy and, and make a game out of guessing what the Fed will do next? Make speculating about money and interest rates more important than what interest rates are meant to finance and what money is supposed to enable people to use as a tool to plan. Uh, I think... I, I think we need to be jerked back to 
reality. And, um, and I hope we can look at these, these fundamental questions about the failings of central banking. Well, those, you know, you make so many excellent points, but, but again, when one looks at the political landscape or, or the ability to discuss anything on any topic, isn't it almost guaranteed that we need some sort of a really big crisis to get this discussion to move along? I mean, everything you say makes sense, and I agree with you, but I can't see any politician wanting to even bother with this because they would say, why? Or let me bring up something I proposed a few years ago. This is, this is what I would do. And this really would be a treasury function. But here's something, and, and I will say in advance, when I've introduced this at the Cato Institute, I've written about it. It ended up being an article for a, um, a, the Central Banking Journal. It was taken very seriously in, in that sense. It's been embraced by George Gilder and some other people as the only real um, specific initiative that we could possibly launch. But here's what it amounts to. And first, let me just bring up TIPS bonds, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. They came about in um, 1999 under Rubin when he was Treasury Secretary, and it was a way for Treasury to offer an alternative investment vehicle for people who were concerned about inflation. So as, as you all know, uh, a, a TIPS bond uh, is like a Treasury bond. It's a loan to the government. But it compensates people after the fact for inflation. You can either take your chance and bid whatever you want for treasury security and, and hope that you come out all right. You know, your predictions of inflation are embedded in the price you're willing to pay for that security. But, but a tips bond would just say you're going to get this rate, but then we'll compensate you for the impact of inflation on your purchasing power as represented by the CPI. And they were popular. Maybe more important from the point I'm trying to get to is TIPS bonds became a very important tool for the Federal Reserve because they represent the aggregate expectations of the market about inflation. So the difference between the rates um, demanded on a conventional treasury obligation and, and the rate on a tips bond would show what people were anticipating as far as what future in inflation would cost them and therefore what they would pay for this insurance against it. Here's something you could do. The, the Fed's balance sheet includes, it sits on, and actually it belongs to Treasury, but it shows up on the balance sheet, the, the real value of the 261 million ounces of gold that the government holds is, is say roughly a half trillion, roughly a half trillion. When Donald Trump first became president, many people were suggesting to um, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, because I, I work you know, on the transition team, the lead advisor on, on, um, to Treasury on international financial affairs. There, there was thought to be demand for a 50-year or even a 100-year uh, treasury obligation, that the market would want to see that, the government might want to do that because rates were low, and um, why not? 
why not see if there would be demand out there? I'm saying, why couldn't you take even that half trillion value today, the market value of the gold, which has been sitting there since 73, um, it's carried at book value of $42, I think. Why couldn't you say that is the collateral for a 50-year treasury obligation? And, and let's structure it like this to keep it simple. What would you pay today to have, to have the right 50 years from now to either get the nominal value on that security when it matures or to get an ounce of gold? Let's just say gold is 1800 or something right now. What would you pay to get $1,800 in the future from the U.S. government or and it, to be exercised at your option as the bondholder, one ounce of gold? What would you pay for that security? It's sort of the combination of, um, you know, a put, I guess, and a, and a conventional treasury security. But I think you would find people would pay a real premium for that. You know, what do they pay? What do they get on a 30 year security right now? Let's say they demand uh, 4%. Let's say they demand 4% for a 50 year one or 5%. But what would you discount that today by that amount compounded? But if you also knew that at that time you could also opt to take the ounce of gold. Um, would that be an interesting investment for you? I predict that even if you offered it as some kind of a savings type certificate and people put it away for their grandkids, that there would be high demand. I think it would be the cheapest way the government could ever borrow. I think it's a way to make sure nobody suddenly says, hey, let's just sell all that, sell all that gold and then we'll have another half trillion to waste in government spending. I think it's a way to lock it up. I think it's a way to challenge the Fed. I remember once uh, Ron Paul asked Ben Bernanke, why does the Fed even keep that gold? And he said, oh, it's just, just an asset. We just hold it because it's an asset. And he says, well, then why not diamonds? Why don't you hold diamonds? And the point being that just like the European Central Bank, uh, gold has always been considered a bulwark for solidifying the monetary credibility of central banks. So why not, why not utilize it? Why not utilize it, issue this security, and um, let's just see if there's any interest in it. This could then become, in my, in my view, another tool like tips bonds, because it's doing the same thing. You're letting people loan money to the government, but if they're concerned about a decrease in the purchasing power of the dollar, they would be compensated but not in accordance with the CPI, let them, a lot of people would say gold is their surrogate for a decline in the purchasing price for commodities. So let it be just that, just have people say, well, I, I'm worried that my purchasing price of my dollar is going to go down either by 2% a year or 4% a year. Therefore, the right to be able to convert on the day of maturity into a tangible asset that I consider a surrogate for purchasing power is a value to me. I think it would be huge news. And, and of course, um, you know, anyone advocating it will suffer the, the being labeled a gold bug or something. The point being, it, it is an asset held by the government. 
It has always been connected with um, monetary stability. Um, it sits there of no use to anyone. It's not touched. It hasn't changed in value as far as bookkeeping all this time. In a way, you're going to get a windfall profit um, even after, the, you know, in the future for it's going to be worth more than $40, I guarantee. So it doesn't hurt financially the U.S. government and and I think is another potentially interesting investment vehicle that Treasury should consider, um, just like a tips bond and could maybe could even be done by a Treasury secretary in the future. People who will say, yes, but this is the first time Treasury has issued the security having anything to do with a dollar being convertible into gold in, in the future at any time since the end of Bretton Woods in 73. So that's interesting. That's interesting. But here's what's more interesting. Let's say the European Central Bank or even let's say China also decides to issue a sovereign debt instrument, likewise redeemable in 50 years for an ounce of gold using their own currency at a stipulated rate in the future for that ounce of gold. Now you have the beginnings of future stable exchange rates because let's say the European Central Bank and, and the United States government and, um, and China all issue sovereign-backed debt instruments convertible into gold at the future at a specific rate relative to their currencies, you now have a stable exchange rate among those three major currencies. That's the beginning of working toward a future stable level monetary playing field foundation, which I think is the only proper foundation for free trade and rational investment. And, uh, and I don't think global is a dirty word. Um, I think that um, international competition is a positive thing and generates uh, higher levels of global prosperity. So I would be willing to, to see something like that that could be used as a tool for the Fed. Um, a half trillion isn't that much money. But on the other hand, if the instrument is very popular, I would guess that um, you would see investment companies uh, bundling treasury securities with options on the future price of gold in a way that would, would replicate the same sort of um, instrument. And um, just seeing what those instruments traded for between now and the next 50 years, assuming a market developed, could be very informative about how people view the dollar relative to gold. It's a good, simple surrogate. It doesn't have to be gold, but almost every central bank in the world holds gold. If you can come up with something better, it's fine with me. But it seems to me a natural. And um, in the meantime, it could be paving the way toward a more rational uh, international monetary system. People say, well, let, give me specifics. Well, let's just see what kind of controversy would arise out of an initiative like that. And, um, and I mean, I would expect a great flurry. I, I've been told, oh, it's a big nothing. Nothing would happen. Nothing would happen. And then I've been told, oh, that's so radical. It doesn't stand a chance. Well, maybe it's somewhere in between that and it could be useful, informative, and it certainly could become a barometer if that became a daily observed uh, number in the same way that 
people compare the return on tips bonds to conventional treasury securities, uh, that's a that's an interesting commentary. And that's an interesting reference point for the Fed. What are people's expectations, not only on the value of the dollar relative to, say, commodities in general, or make it a surrogate for the real economy, if you want, um, but it also becomes a, um, the receptacle of aggregate expectations regarding exchange rates with other major currencies. And I think then it would be an interesting contest among governments to see whose currency appears to be the most stable and in demand relative to that particular type of sovereign obligation that would say a lot about people's expectations about the um, how the central banks are going to deliver in terms of the stability of currencies. You asked the question, why not a little while ago in, in a rhetorical fashion, but, but I, I want to kind of make it a more real question because it, it seems to those of us outside the Federal Reserve that there is this antipathy towards gold, verging on almost fear of gold amongst central bankers. You know, we looked at Greenspan pre-Fed and, and um, his essay, Gold and Economic Freedom. We've looked at his attitude post the end of his tenure as Fed chair when he's been much more of an advocate for gold. But it, it seemed as though while he was in office, there was no murder placed upon talking about gold. And that, that seems to be pretty consistent that the subject of gold is off limits. And, and as you found out in your own confirmation hearings, you know, it, as soon as the word gold gets tagged with your name, it evokes a response which is wholly dislocated from, from gold's central place in the monetary world. So what is it about gold that seems to strike some kind of fear or antipathy within the confines of central banks? It's so fun and funny that you you bring that up because uh, Alan Greenspan has been a great friend, great colleague. Well, since I think he first sent me a note in 89 because he had just come back from the Soviet Union and he'd, he'd seen my book uh, on the coming Soviet crash. And he said, why do you drop by, come to Washington? I was in California at the time and let's talk. And that became a regular ritual, I would say three to four times a year, both when he was chairman and afterwards, we would get together to talk about, in a very intellectual way, these matters, because I think he saw that I had a very similar view as he had long had concerning gold. That's a great article, um, Gold and Economic Freedom, that he wrote in, uh, came out in Ayn Rand's 66 compendium, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. Well, I met with him a number of times after I was nominated, too. And we had great conversations about how that might go. And at one point, there was an article in the uh, Washington Post, and it was really going after me as a gold bug. So I sent him an email and said, um, I note a certain hysterical antagonism to those who would discuss the gold standard. Uh, and because that's that's the way his article started out, talking about the, a certain hysterical antagonism. He wrote back a really cute note, <laughs> says, yes, yes, I recognize it also. And then he always he never backed off saying that gold is, he says, the only real currency. And he has always been um, he in fact, he was very supportive of my Treasury gold bond. We called them Treasury trust bonds idea. I might even say he um, 
help me talk to some members of the Senate about it, but I don't want to go too far with that. But he thought he proposed something actually in a Wall Street Journal article in 1981. He proposed issuing go back treasury securities. So I was really building on an idea that he had originally put forward very publicly in September 1981 in the Wall Street Journal in an opinion piece. So I don't know what it is. I guess in the same way when Milton Friedman in the 60s was saying we should have floating rates as our new international monetary system, that is, don't have any kind of system, just have floating rates, that was treated. And and you should go back and read Paul Volcker on this. He says that was treated as utter heresy. And he said 90% of all economists would say that's ridiculous. And anyone suggesting that is not worthy of being considered a scholar. So I would say economists are terribly trendy and they just play it so safe. They stick with what's popular at the time. And I, I think it's, it, it doesn't reflect well on economists as truth seekers or being open to things that have worked in the past or borrowing from prior systems and trying to adapt them to the future. Look at, look at Frederick Hayek. He's an exception. He wrote, I think it was 77 or 78, because um, I was working on my PhD. And ironically, so was uh, Alan Greenspan at the time. He'd gone back to NYU, I think, <laughs> and to get a PhD. And so we were both very interested in talking later, years later, about that famous approach of the privatization of money, the denationalization of money. We didn't have the technology to do what Hayek suggested, which was to let private companies provide money and let people have a choice of what money they wanted to use. Because the idea that someone would be standing in line at a grocery checkout and decide which currency to use to pay for their groceries was just impossible to even comprehend. Now, technically, we could almost do that, notwithstanding the the crash we're seeing in cryptocurrencies. But the idea, if competition's good, why not have private competition? Because Milton's idea, and, and it was Mundell who really pointed this out, Milton Friedman was great on domestic monetary issues, but not so good on international, because he said, first off, if you say money should be free floating, the exchange rate, you're already erecting a barrier to entry because only sovereign governments were issuers of money. You didn't have private money. So you're already at best talking not about a free market, but a cartel or even an oligarch run by a few powerful governments who issued money. So in those days, say the United States, uh, Germany and Japan. And under Friedman's idea, Governments wouldn't have any kind of foreign exchange reserves. Government would never intervene in those markets. So if Americans were buying tons of Japanese goods, they needed yen to buy them. That would drive the yen up. The government would never get involved. And as the yen got more expensive, then that would be self-equilibrating. That would bring the price of those goods back into line. So they weren't such a bargain compared to American produced or German produced goods. So that's why it could be self-correcting in that sense. But in fact, we see uh, governments sitting on huge amounts of reserves 
and willing to, to dump them to support their currencies. And um, it, none of it really worked the way Milton Friedman had anticipated. He thought we would end up with currency stability. All we got were terrific fluctuations, including, I mean, Volcker pointed out that the rate between the dollar and the yen would move sometimes 20 to 30 percent. And he said that's impossible for anyone to plan. Where's the best place to set up a manufacturing plant? He couldn't believe we tolerated a so-called system like that. Jacques de la Rossière of France, he was the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. I listened to him a, a few years ago and now meet fairly regularly with him. He's in his 90s. And he says what we have now is, is worse than a non-system. It's an anti-system. And yet we allow this to go on. And that's why right now the dollar is really killing exports. And so people who are producing goods that should be purchased abroad are now finding they're priced out of the market for reasons they can't control. So who is in charge? If our government's in charge of the money, how can you destroy the plans of honest entrepreneurs and not be held accountable for your failure to deliver monetary integrity, let's say stable money in both the domestic and the international sense. Julia, I'm stepping on Bill's toes a little bit here because this is absolutely his bailiwick. But um, going back to Alan Greenspan, you know, many people would lay at his feet the kind of the, the, the moment where we got off course and we went to relying on lowering interest rates at the first time of trouble. You, know, you go back to the 87 crash and his response was, was a dramatic reduction in interest rates that, that seemed to work. And it seems to many people that that's where we got off track. And, it, and it's always, I've always been puzzled by his interest and his, um, his adherence to sound money, and yet the policies he pursued when in the, when in the hot seat. Um, Bill, I don't know if you want to add to that question, because I know this is something that you've thought about and written about, but um, I, I'm sure you know where I'm going with it. Yeah, I, I, I understand the question. All I would say is um, that personally, I believe that the path that we got on to the degradation of money and the central bank policies would be laid at Greenspan's feet. And in particular, because he got over captivated by productivity in the late 90s, pursued too easy of a policy that we wound up having the stock bubble. Then they pursued the same policies. We had a real estate bubble. Of course, by that time, now we're moving on to Bernanke. In any case, Judy, I mean, I, I know he may have been a friend of yours. But I was very quite critical of him. And I think he has a uh, single-handedly responsible for taking us down a very bad path. So I, I don't mean to offend you if that do does, but that, that's where I am on that. No, I mean, I think there is a, uh, an intellectual, intellectual dissonance there. I don't think he would acknowledge that. But when you say 1987, you know, we saw what happened that day. I remember it very well. And I think the market dropped, what, 587 points or something. That was huge at the time, unimaginable. I guess that gets into the issue. And this is what, say, if we ever had a monetary commission, I think it would come down to, do we want a lender of last resort? Do we want to give that kind of power to any institution or any agency of government to deploy the airbag? I think that's what we saw Powell do, and he was commended for it as the pandemic hit in March of 2020. You deploy the airbag, you provide crazy amounts of liquidity, loans, where they got that 10 for one leverage between Treasury and the Fed. You can't find justification for that 
anywhere. And yet Congress agreed to provide the funds to back up this idea that that the Fed would make these programs available using a little seed money from Treasury. The problem with the Fed is then they didn't know how to get the deployed airbag out of the windshield and out of the car and get the car back on the road and let it start driving again. But you can see why they're forgiven for that in a sense. It maybe, you know, it looked like COVID could raise its ugly head again. As far as Greenspan, last day of September 2008, I was in Paris, and that was the day that Congress declined to approve the emergency spending program as we were having that 2008 global financial meltdown. There was an emergency stabilization act that Bernanke had been pitching and both Obama and um, John McCain, who were the presidential candidates, suspended their campaigns to race back to Washington because they said it's so important that this would be approved. And it got turned down and the market absolutely collapsed. And I got a call at about 9 p.m., had just finished dinner from uh, the Wall Street Journal opinion page saying, could you write the lead op-ed for tomorrow? And I did. And they ran it. And it started out, you know, this is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper, because everyone was in pain. And, oh, it's going to be the end of capitalism and such. But what I ended up trying to say is, is this Greenspan's fault? And if so, Greenspan has been knighted. He was granted an honorary award by the French government. He was uh, had the highest award presidential medal in the United States. He was seen as the banker of the century. So how does the world's greatest central banker suddenly turn into a monetary doofus? I mean, and why is it his fault? He left in January of 2006. So this is, you know, two and a half years later. And what I was trying to say is, oh, he was even being called by, I think, the Italian finance minister as the worst enemy, the worst terrorist in the world, second only to bin Laden. So I thought he was not omniscient, but who could be? Nobody ever could be. And if we're relying on one individual, say, the the head of the Federal Reserve to have some instinct about what is the suitable rate of interest for all kinds of money, uh, for, for bank deposits, for borrowing, for all kinds of credit markets, mortgages, uh, to rule the world of derivatives and its impact on, on currencies and currency futures, is there really one person who's omniscient and he always knows, is that really what our system is is based on, because if we think that kind of intelligence about how economies function can be centered in one person or one small group of people, we might as well go back to ghost plan. We might as well have central planning. So that to me goes back to the tension, like you say, was at the beginning of a, you know, a green span Uh, put, I mean, it was much later that he said, if we're getting an increase in productivity and we don't see inflation, then we can keep rates low. Well, that is exactly when uh, President Trump was criticizing the Fed so famously 
the Fed under Jay Powell then decided to launch an investigation to review the framework. Well, what did the framework come up with? Exactly that, that until we see the whites of its eyes on inflation, let's keep rates low because then we get broad participation rates and that's very beneficial to minorities. So we're going to be very patient. We're going to have average inflation targeting. And since we haven't been able to hit 2%, we've come under that all these years. That means we're going to tolerate moderately above 2% for some time. And that's about as explicit as they got, that kind of language. The point being, there is that temptation. And it was exactly what I think Trump was also arguing, that rates under Powell had gone up four times in his um, first year. So he ended up saying, maybe we have been raising them for the wrong reason. And so his next three moves were to take back three of those four rates in 2019. And all I'm saying is, I think the Fed had taken the position that so long as we don't have inflation, why are we raising rates to be punitive? If we're trying to normalize, there's nothing normal about paying banks not to make loans for real engagement, for productive activity. There's nothing normal about that. So I understand it's convenient to use Fed heads, especially Greenspan, as a scapegoat. But again, that then supports this notion of what I consider just a spectacle every few weeks after the FOMC meetings when reporters pummel the Fed chair with questions as if, as if he's just the guru and, uh, and then if he gives us uh, an answer that someone cleverly says, oh, that means this, that means that, and this obsession over every word, I just think it's, it's very unhealthy. So I'm ready not to disparage the individuals who have headed the Fed, but to, to question the entire approach. This idea of keeping rates low, I completely understand that. But if you're keeping them effectively at zero, you get back to this argument that, that we were talking about earlier on about corrupting or influencing the single most important price on the planet. And, and so low rates is one thing, but when you look at the average historical rate, we're talking you know, maybe between 5 and 6%, but keeping it at zero, it seems that the one thing that would have made sense at any point in this would be a counter-cyclical rate hike when things were good. And you can say, look, you can have a dialogue with people. We're, the, we're all about forward guidance, so we want to have a dialogue with you and say, look, we are going to gently increase the cost of capital because the economy is doing great. We're not trying to choke anything off. But realistically, long term, you can't keep the rate of money at zero because you leave yourself nowhere to go in the bad times. I'm, I'm curious as to why it seems impossible to have that kind of dialogue with people, to be transparent, to be open, and to be proactive rather than always trying to, to put out the next fire that you find burning at your feet? Well, when you say, um, I mean, if the Fed doesn't want to be accommodating, but it also doesn't want to be contractionary and is seeking that perfect neutral rate, why even have a Fed? What's the difference between the Fed's perceived neutral rate and a market-determined rate of interest? I appreciate your question in a sense, and I agree, if we're saying it's okay to manipulate downward, well, then now we also have to approve manipulating upward. In both cases, it's an artificial setting because the Fed is intervening to depress or uplift what would be the uh, market rate of interest. And I do say, if you're going to sign on to Keynesian approach, I mean, 
Keynesian stimulation, monetary or fiscal, always would say you stimulate to get the ball rolling when you have a contractionary episode, but you make up for that over the business cycle, which he used to say was four years by the government running a surplus, if we're looking in the fiscal realm, to balance out the deficit. But over the long run, you would have a balanced budget. Well, we only like the deficit part. And I would also say in the monetary realm, uh, we say that wages are sticky downward, and that justifies the, the 2% approach. As I say, the, the money illusion approach of sort of a permanent perpetual low rate of inflation. But I would say interest rates are sticky upward because then you get a rebellion, but from financial markets. And in either case, it's concern over almost the psychology, uh, whether it's the workers who don't want their wages to be lower than, than they thought they deserved, even if it's nominal, and you're sort of assuming they're all too dumb to understand they're making less if inflation exceeds their wage gain. But at the same time, then you punish people who believed in markets and now they see that just uh, deteriorating. That's also very psychologically painful. And so do we want a government institution to ameliorate that in both directions or can we take our money straight? and just say, this is what it is. Can we take interest rates straight? This is what they are. I remember when Greenspan was chairman, he gave a speech about the gold standard and he said, under it, we did have market crises, but they were more limited and of shorter duration than we have had when central banks have attempted to intervene in accordance with what they thought would be the needs of the economy. Judy, just changing the subject a little bit before we wrap up, and I'm hugely appreciative of your time and, and conscious of it at the same time. You know, talking to you and listening to you make so much sense about this stuff is really quite reassuring, I have to say. But but I'm I'm curious uh, to know, going back to the the nomination process that you went through, um, it was a pretty close vote ultimately. And I'm I'm listening to the way you think and listening to the way you see. The, the central banking world. And I'm curious as to how, frankly, you got anywhere near that nomination because you talk way too much sense and, and way too much <laughs> practicality. Talk us through that process if you can, because it, it's remarkable to me. I, you know, I, I'm glad I, I went through the process. I mean, I'm not comfortable with the way I was treated by the press. And there were a lot of simplifications. Uh, as I say, I like theory. I think you have to explore even radical notions in order to figure out what you're fundamentally attempting to do, especially when it comes to, to monetary policy and its impact, which I think is far too important these days, its impact on um, economic decision-making. But actually, uh, I was comfortably um, slated to be approved. There were, uh, I think, three senators who supported me who were out with COVID. There were two Democrat senators who had been exposed to COVID and said they were self-quarantining, but they both came to Washington two days later um, instead of from, from the time on the Saturday, they declared they'd both been exposed and would quarantine 10 days. And then my nomination came up. They, they came. Grassley, Senator Grassley was definitely in favor of, of me being on the Fed. And um, he got covid the morning of the vote. So I think 
uh, Senator Romney, I, I have no idea why he didn't support my nomination. I went to the University of Utah, got my PhD there, and won um, an award for best doctoral student paper in the country, which brought some honor to the University of Utah. So I never understood why he didn't support me, honestly. And, um, but he didn't. He wouldn't talk with me. Um, Murkowski and, and Toomey and any others, uh, Kennedy, who, who had questions after talking with me, all supported me. So no one who ever actually sat down with me, none of the Republicans uh, voted against me. Quite the opposite. They supported me. A couple said, well, do you have an inside deal that you're going to be the chairman of the Fed? And I said, no, no, I don't. That was never suggested to me uh, during the one meeting I had with President Trump in the Oval Office. Never came up, I guarantee you. Uh, it was only brought up in the press, I think, maybe to make it look like I, I would be some radical who could assert that kind of authority of my own views, um, which was not realistic. In any case, it was very close. I got a call after the vote from Vice President Mike Pence, who said he was very sorry. He was suited up, ready to vote for me, would have bro broken the tie, but that he felt it would be brought up again. At the last minute, um, McConnell went back and reversed his vote because that then gave him the option to bring it up again. But it, it didn't happen. And I was resubmitted my name you have to do that when the year runs out under the Trump administration. But one of the very first things done by the Biden administration was to rescind that nomination. So maybe it worked out as all things do for the best, I suppose, because um, I think I've been liberated to say what I think more than before. Although, as you say, maybe all of everything I've said is already on record somewhere. Um, you know, I, I think it's about time to have fresh ideas, but maybe within the Fed is not how to how to pursue them. Well, I think you were treated incredibly poorly, but I think in the big scheme of things, you're quite fortunate not to be there because they are in a real jam. And perhaps when the proverbial uh, shit hits the fan, they'll look to an, a knowledgeable outside source. And since you'll be an outsider with an insider's knowledge, Maybe they'll listen to you when it comes time to actually get us on a better path down the road after things get much worse. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's nice. I'm not as concerned now whether the Fed listens, but I think Congress, who does have the constitutional responsibility, needs to step up and question whether this system is, is working the way it should. Is this the best we can do to have central banking where the only real policy tool is to hammer the economy. I think we'll see that's not such a brilliant approach. Judy, I can't thank you enough for this. It's been so enjoyable talking to you. And as I say, incredibly reassuring that there are voices in the circles that we kind of sit outside of and wonder. There are voices like yours that have not just a sensible approach, but a willingness to, as you say, entertain radical ideas, because that's where we're at in the cycle. You know, I, I suspect radical ideas are going to be needed to try and solve the train wreck that's potentially coming our way. So, uh, you know, thank you for all you do and thank you for talking about the stuff with us. It's been, it's been a real thrill, thank you. I'd like to just say, hopefully we can uh, come back and revisit this down the road as things go along the, the way it looks like they will. But I'd like to get your, uh, your view of things again down the road somewhere. Well, thanks. You know what they say, that things are impossible until they become inevitable, right? <laughs> there we go. Well said. Judy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, I've got to say, Bill, that was every bit as enjoyable as I thought it was going to be. Just fascinating, you know. I keep using the word reassuring, and it is reassuring to know that at least these voices of sanity are in that circle. Now, whether they get listened to is another matter, and there seems to be a real fear of people like Judy Shelton who talk such great sense and have practical ideas that while they might seem to be radical – actually are no more radical than some of the crazy interest rate-based policies that have been pursued. Yeah, I think your point about being reassuring, I think, is a, is a good one. It, it's nice to know that there are people like her that are close to the folks that make the rules, the government, who have a very solid understanding of what's going on. I continue to believe what I said in about needing a crisis Yep. There, there's no chance to even get an intellectual dialogue of any consequence without a crisis. And of course, the problem, the crisis is people default to the old mess. So I think the fact that we're on the path to the end game of the central banking, as we've known it, at some point, someone wise like her will need to get the ear of whoever's going to try to fix things. I don't see the intellectual firepower in this administration. I didn't in the last one or the one before that, nor in Congress. So I don't know how we're going to get to that point. I continue to think things are going to have to get quite bleak. But at least it's nice to know that there are people who have, who have good heads on their shoulders that can help solve the problem when people actually decide they want to try to solve it. Yeah, because look, when that crisis comes, they're not going to go outside the community for, for inputs, right? They are going to look amongst themselves and think, okay, we, what do we do now? And it's good to know that Judy has one foot inside that camp and and – will be a familiar face and a familiar name to the people that are searching for answers. So, you know, there, there is a chance that she will get listened to, hopefully. I, as I said, I, I'm, I'm amazed that that confirmation vote was 47.50 because she is so radical it, given the way that these central banks work. Well, given that common sense is now radical. Well, exactly. No, it's exactly my point. But I say for, for her to get 47.50 is actually encouraging, I think, because, uh, you know, I, I, you can tell why... So many economists, including, as they always say, seven Nobel Prize winners, uh, wrote a letter saying she should not be allowed anywhere near central banking, which I think says far more negative things about economists than it does about Judy Shelton. Yeah, well, if that many didn't want her, that means she should have gotten the job exactly for sure. Right. Well, mate, um, look, another interesting step on our, our little pathway towards figuring out what the end game is. We're still no closer to understanding it, but boy, do we have a lot more to think about. So our thanks to Judy Shelton for spending that time with us. Our thanks to you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter. If you're not doing so already, you'll find me at TTMYGH. And I'm at Fleckcap, still. And always will be. Mate, always a pleasure. I will talk to you again soon. All righty, thanks. See you, mate. Good to talk to you. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.